Well, if you would open in your Bible to Revelation 22, the passage that we read earlier, Revelation 22. If you don't have a Bible, one of our ushers would be happy to to get one for you, one of these blue hardback ones. If you don't own a Bible, you are more than welcome to take that one home with you. So today we, we finish the book of Revelation. It's been 33 weeks. We started back in mid-January, and, and if you've been gathering with us over the past months, you'll, you'll remember, as we've talked about a number of times, the, the book of Revelation is, a, is, is structured around these four visions that the Apostle John has while he's on the island of, of Patmos in the Aegean Sea. And, and in these visions, he's given a, a grand cosmic view of history running all the way through to the, to the return of Christ and the final judgment and the new creation, which is where we ended last week. And back in chapter 1, John began the account of his visions by saying, I, John, was on Patmos, and I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and, and I heard behind me a loud voice saying like a trumpet, write in a book what you see. So, at the, at the beginning of this final section of the book that we're looking at today, chapter 22, this, this epilogue, we read, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. So, those statements act as sort of bookends around John's visions. So, so after weeks of working through all of these visions, we're, we're suddenly right back on Patmos with John on the Lord's Day. John kind of snaps out of this, this vision that he's had from, from the angel. Now, John's visions are, are also bookended by another set of, of parallel statements. The beginning of Revelation, Revelation 1-3, before the visions, we read, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. And then in Revelation 22, Revelation 22, 7, at the end of the visions, we read, Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. And so as we've been working through the book of Revelation, one of the things that we've, we've tried to constantly come back to is that, that this book isn't given to us primarily to satisfy our curiosity about what's going to happen in the end times. It's not, it's not written so that we can construct a, a, a chart and have everything mapped out. We're called to, to heed what is written here. And that means to be more than just familiar with what the book says. It means more than to comprehend it, to understand it. It means more than just to keep or guard it, although we, we read that in verses 18 and 19 here in chapter 22. But to heed what is written in this book means to pay attention and persist in obedience to it. Right? Revelation is not about satisfying our curiosity. It's about encouraging our perseverance. And so, as we, as we look at these final verses in the book, we're faced with this question, 
How are we to heed what is written here? How are we to respond to what the book of Revelation says, this this great call to perseverance for God's people? Because the book concludes with with several exhortations that that shape how we ought to respond in light of of everything that we've we've read through the book, all of these visions. And I'd like to to point out three of them in particular this morning, that, that as the book concludes, we see Revelation calls us to worship God, to stay awake, and to come and live. Worship God, stay awake, come and live. So, let's start working through the passage. First, we see Revelation calls us to a renewed worship of God. If you look in verses 8 and 9, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things, and When I heard and saw, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. But he said to me, do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and of your brethren, the prophets, and those who heed the words of this book. Worship God. Now, it's it's funny. John, earlier in his vision, we read in chapter 19 that he did the same thing. He fell down to try to worship at the feet of this at this angel, and the angel said, don't, don't do that. John must be so overwhelmed by these visions that he gets confused. He tries to worship this, this angel, and the angel quickly corrects him, telling him, no, I'm, I'm just a servant. Worship God. But John's impulse here is correct, even if his actions aren't. So what, what we learn in this book should cause us, like John, to to fall in worship of God. As you've seen throughout this book, not just reasons for which God should be worshipped, we've, we've actually gotten a, a sneak peek into the very worship of heaven. Right? number of times throughout the book, we get little snippets of, of the choruses that are sung by the angels and the saints in glory. Revelation calls us to join in that worship It's already taking place to join in the chorus of the the saints and angels in heaven. So so think about this. Think about how how we see and why we see God worshipped in the book of Revelation. He's he's worshipped as the Lord God Almighty. Revelation 4, 8, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Revelation 19.6, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. He's worshipped just for being God. He's also worshipped as the Creator. Revelation 4.11, worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. Revelation 14. Seven, fear God and give Him glory. Worship Him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and the springs of water. He's not just worshipped as the Creator. He's also worshipped as the Redeemer, especially in chapter 5 as we, we see or John sees and we with him see this Lamb who was slain, who's at the center of heaven's worship. Revelation 5, 9, worthy are you, for you were slain 
And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Revelation 5.12, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Jesus Christ, the lamb who died for our sins and rose again, is at the center of, of heaven's worship. He's also worshiped as the king. Revelation 11, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He will reign forever and ever. We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, who are and who were, because you have taken your great power and begun to reign. Revelation 15, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all the nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. He's worshiped as the one who has sovereign control over all things. And in, and in, a, in a world where John's readers were, were under the, the control of, of the Romans and, and oppressed, not just politically, but oppressed socially and oppressed religiously, and the knowledge that it is God who, who reigns would be remarkably comforting. God is also worshiped in Revelation as the judge. Revelation 16, righteous are you who are and who were, O holy one, because you judged these things, for they poured out the blood of saints and prophets. Yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. Revelation 19, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God because his judgments are true and righteous. For he has judged the great harlot who was corrupting the earth with her immorality, and he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. We read through the book of Revelation, and we get a, we get a glimpse of, of not just why God ought to be worshipped, why he's worthy of worship, but how he is worshipped. And all of this should have the effect of, of enlarging our view of who God is. Revelation, more than almost anywhere else in the whole Bible, paints a, a, a full, glorious, unveiled picture of God's holy splendor and power. He's infinitely worthy to be worshipped. And though we, we are finite, we see something more here of His infinite perfection. Think about how this would have affected the original readers of, of this book who were suffering that increasing persecution and, and hardship in their society. Be, these reminders about who God is, who God is would, would, would set their own experience in perspective, and it ought to do the same thing for us. Confronted with, with suffering and and sin, and trials, and hardship, and frustration, we have a much more natural tendency to complain than we do to worship. Revelation challenges us with that. 
One of the reasons why this is so important is because that our view of who God is can easily become domesticated. Right? We, can, we can lose sight of His beauty and majesty and glory, even though it's right in front of us in the pages of Scripture. To, to steal the title of a book by J.B. Phillips, we have a tendency for our God to be too small, too tame, too familiar. I was once visiting some friends in, in Colorado Springs, and I commented to them as we're, as we're driving around how, how amazing it was to, to see the Rocky Mountains right there looming just, just over us and how much being there, I, I loved to see it. I couldn't stop looking at them. I loved to wake up and see Pikes Peak, 14,000 feet rising into the air. It was amazing to me. I grew up in the Midwest where there's no mountains or hills or bumps. <laughs> I could stand on my tiptoes and see across to Iowa. And one of my friends, as I'm, as I'm raving about these mountains that I'm seeing, they're glorious. One of my friends who grew up in Colorado just commented, oh, yeah, I, I guess I really don't think about that anymore. I'm just kind of used to it. I never want that to be the case with God. I, I never want to get so used to His majesty, His greatness, that I become lethargic in my worship. And that means constantly seeking to, to cultivate a, a reverent awe of God and His glory by, by deepening my understanding of who He is and what He's done. And from the, the songs of exaltation that we read in the book of Revelation to the mighty works of God that we, that we see displayed there, this, this book undomesticates and expands our vision of who God is and, and reorients our worship. So we heed what's written in the book of Revelation by, by allowing it to drive us to an, an enlarged and, and renewed worship of God. Revelation calls us to worship God. Second, Revelation calls us to stay awake. Stay awake. Four times in this chapter, chapter 22, we read something about the, the nearness of the coming of Christ. We see it in... in Verse 7, behold, I am coming quickly. And we see it in verse 10. Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. In verse 12, again, behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. And then at the end in verse 20, he who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. And these reminders about the, the nearness of Christ's coming are about more than just comforting Christians that Jesus will come again. They certainly do that, and they certainly would have done that to, to John's readers. But it's about more than that both in Revelation and in the, the New Testament at large, these reminders about the coming of Christ and the, the nearness of the coming of Christ are, are more often used as a call to, to God's people to be ready. And it's not readiness in terms of knowing exactly what's going to happen and when and how, but readiness in terms of our behavior as believers. It's readiness of godliness. 
To be ready is to, to persevere in godliness through the trials and temptations of the world. And often throughout the New Testament, both Jesus and the apostles use the terminology of staying awake to make this point. To stay awake is to be alert, to be watchful, to be ready to, to persevere in our godliness. To be asleep, on the other hand, is to live like a functional atheist, to drift into a, a life of unworried ungodliness, thinking, well, maybe Jesus is coming, but it's not soon. It's not going to happen anytime, so I can eat, drink, and be merry. We see this throughout the New Testament. Jesus uses it in His parables, talking about his, his return, warning His followers, be alert, you don't know when the Son of Man is coming. Paul uses it in, in Romans and 1 Thessalonians, talking about it's time for believers to, to, to awake, to stay awake, to put off the deeds of, of darkness and put on the armor of light, to, to not be caught napping like those who don't believe Jesus is coming, but to live lives of, of godliness. And the language is used the same way in, in the book of Revelation. If you go back to Revelation 3, Jesus speaks to the church in Sardis, which despite its, its reputation had apparently drifted into ungodliness. They'd fallen asleep. So the Lord says to them, I know your deeds. You have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Remember what you have received and heard and keep it. And repent. If you do not wake up, I will come like a thief in the night, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. That is, you won't be ready when I come, because you're living a sinful, worldly life. He calls them to shake themselves out of this, this sinful apathy and renew their pursuit of holiness as His people. So be ready when He comes. He calls them to wake up and persevere. And then later in Revelation, Revelation 16, 15, Jesus likewise says, Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. And that's it's not Jesus saying, make sure you sleep with your clothes on. It's Jesus saying, be ready when I come. Live a godly life so that when the Lord comes, we will have no reason to be ashamed. It's very similar actually to what John says in 1 John 2.28, that we're to persevere in our faith and godliness now. We're, because we have fixed our hope on Christ, we're to purify ourselves as He is pure so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from Him in shame at His coming. So then the, the reminders that we read here in chapter 22 about Jesus coming quickly and the time being near are not merely to comfort us, to remind us that Jesus is coming, but to motivate us to persevere in the midst of these trials, the suffering, the temptation that the world throws at us. And in this context, we read verse 11. The time is near, and so let the one who does wrong still do wrong, and the one who is filthy Still be filthy, let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness, and the one who is holy still keep himself 
holy. This is effectively the same thing as God told Ezekiel during his ministry. As Ezekiel is announcing the coming of God's judgment, he says to Ezekiel, he says, I will open your mouth and you will say to them, Ezekiel, thus says the Lord God, and he who hears, let him hear, and he who refuses, let him refuse. God's revelation of Himself will result either in hearing or refusing to hear, either submission or rebellion. As one of my favorite authors, J.C. Ryle, often said, the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. Confronted with the reality of Jesus' coming, we either listen and obey or we refuse to listen and go on in sin. So how are you responding? Are are you seeking to live a godly life in obedience to the Lord, knowing that He's coming? Or are are you like the servant in Jesus' parable in Luke 12, who after being put in charge during His master's absence says, my master will be a long time in coming, and He begins to beat the other servants and to eat and drink and get drunk and is utterly unprepared when the master returns. So what about you? Are you awake? Have you fallen asleep? Have you gotten lazy and complacent in your walk with the Lord? That's easy. Left to ourselves, we we just drift into it. No one just drifts into godliness. So where are you? Are you awake, alert, following the Lord, or are you sleepwalking through this life? Maybe you've fallen asleep in your devotion to the Lord. Maybe you've fallen asleep in your faithfulness to your spouse. Maybe you've fallen asleep in your spiritual care for your family or your pursuit of of sexual purity or your commitment to the church or your sacrificial love for others or your zeal for ministry. The the book of Revelation reminds us that there's this great spiritual battle raging around us, and it, it assures us of the certainty of Christ's victory and His coming. And in light of this, Jesus calls all of us, all His people, to wake up and to stay awake. So consider this your alarm. Don't assume that there will be time later to change, saying, my master won't be back for a long time. If your hope is fixed on Christ and on His coming, then you will seek to live a godly life. And if you don't care about living a godly life, then you're simply showing that your hope is not ultimately in Christ. We don't know when Christ will come, but we do know that He calls His people to faithfulness now. And while we are certainly responsible for this in our own lives, we can't do it alone. Friends, we we need each other in this. When I'm tired, I often need my wife to prod me to get out of bed. Left to myself, I just keep hitting the snooze button. In God's providence, I think it happened a little bit this morning. My wife turned to me and said, sorry, were were you going to get up and take a shower or... In the same way, we need others to help us stay awake and persevere in godliness. And this is one of the reasons why the church is so important. Listen to Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. You've probably heard this many times before. 
Let us consider how to spur one another on to love and good deeds, not forsaking our assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near, the day of Christ's return. We're to spur one another on, encourage one another, as we see Christ's return drawing near. Remember, the church is more than a content delivery platform. This isn't a movie theater where we all gather to watch the same show. God designed the church to be a a family where we gather with one another. Yes, we do it to learn, to hear God's Word, but we also do it to encourage one another, to persevere in faithfulness to Jesus. And all the more as His return draws nearer. So part of staying awake means being part of a local church. And being part of a local church means more than just showing up and slipping out. It means committing. It means seeking to know others and to be known by them. It it means taking responsibility for ministering to others and uh, allowing others to minister to you. We don't stumble into this by accident. We need to be intentional to, to encourage one another and to help one another follow Jesus. That is, we need to disciple one another. What I'm describing isn't radical. This is just normal Christianity. Loving, encouraging, exhorting, caring for, praying for, serving one another in the body of Christ. It doesn't have to be complicated. It doesn't have to be flashy. Quite frankly, you don't need to sign up for a program to do this. You don't need a Bible study or a small group to do it. These, those things are great, and they can be places where this happens, but you don't have to wait for that in order to start helping one another stay awake. This is just the ordinary stuff of being a Christian. The fact that these kinds of mutually encouraging relationships might seem radical may be quite an indictment on what we think it means to be a Christian and what it means to be a part of a church. So in every interaction that you have with with another Christian, ask yourself, how can I help this person to stay awake and persevere in faith in Jesus? How would it strengthen the health of this congregation if those kind of conversations, uh, more, more than just that, these kind of ongoing discipling relationships were just the norm in our life together. Who who can you meet with, pray with, read Scripture with, speak truth with? It requires commitment. It requires effort. But we don't go it alone. Jesus has given us brothers and sisters in the faith to help us, and He's given us to help them. You might think, John, if I do that, I'm not going to have time for anything else. I'm already so busy. I understand that, but, but hear me. Your perseverance in godliness is more important than most of the other stuff on your schedule. Your perseverance in godliness is more important than your kids' sports. It's more important to you, and quite frankly, it's more important to them. So if, if you're too busy to meet up with another Christian to encourage, to encourage them, to, to build them up and to have them encourage and, and build you up, then brother or sister, you are too busy and something needs to change. 
Don't get lulled to sleep by the world's values and patterns. Jesus says you need to wake up. So to heed what's written in Revelation means to stay awake, to persevere in godliness because Jesus is coming again. Revelation calls us to worship God, calls us to stay awake. Third, Revelation calls us to come and live. Come and live. Throughout the book, we have seen that there are ultimately two kinds of people in the world. There are those who belong to God and those who do not. There are those who are sealed with the Spirit and those who are marked by the beast. And these two groups have two very different fates. For the one, eternal life, and for the other, eternal punishment. And here at the end of Revelation, we see that same truth reiterated. We read it again in verses 14 and 15. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. So notice that there is an inside and an outside to eternal life. There are those who enter by the gates into the city and they have the right to the tree of life. That is, they, they possess eternal life. And then there are those who are outside, those who cannot enter, those who do not have eternal life. And so as we come to the end of the book of Revelation, we are confronted with the question, which group do you belong to? Do you know? Are you on the outside of life or are you on the inside of life? Do you have eternal life or are you bound for eternal punishment? Everyone belongs to one of these two groups. The Bible draws a very clear line between the two. There's no middle ground. Those who are on the outside, that is, those who who do not have eternal life, those who are destined for God's righteous judgment in hell, we see here they're, they're defined by their sinful deeds. They are those who persist in their sin, their rebellion, their rejection of God and His Word. But notice this, while those on the outside are defined and characterized by their sin, those who are on the inside are not defined by their goodness. It's not that bad people are on the outside and good religious people are on the inside. Everyone is bad. Everyone is a sinner. The difference between those who are outside and those who are inside is not that those who are outside are bad and those who are inside are good. Those who enter are not those who are good. Those who can enter are those who are washed. It's those who wash their robes who may enter. How are our robes washed? This takes us back to Revelation 7. We read of this great multitude standing before the throne of God, having washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. It is through Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world that sinners can be saved. And and that's not popular. 
It's true that Christianity is a, is a radically exclusive religion. Not everyone will be saved. Not everyone goes to heaven. Not all roads lead to God. All religions are not equally true. Jesus himself said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. It's only through Christ that anyone can be saved. There's one God, Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 2, and there's one, one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. But Christianity is also radically inclusive. While it is only through Christ that anyone can be saved, through Christ anyone can be saved. There's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. And this is why Revelation ends with this beautiful invitation in verse 17. The Spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come, let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. All people everywhere, without distinction or exception, are invited to come to Jesus and receive eternal life freely. It doesn't say, come if you have enough good deeds. It doesn't say, come if you've cleaned yourself up. It doesn't say, come if you're sincere enough. It doesn't say, come if you're sorry enough. God simply says, come, 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 take the water of life without cost. It's all grace from first to last. It's without cost to you because that cost was paid fully by Christ when He was crucified. And He proved that it was paid in full by rising from the dead. And so you are invited to come freely. God invites sinners to receive this gift of grace, calling them to come Jesus himself in John 6 said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. And again in John 7, the Lord says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture said, from his inmost being will flow rivers of living water. So to come to Jesus is to to believe in Him, to trust in Him, to rely on Him, to rest the weight of your hope on Him. And this coming, this believing, it's not something that we bring to Jesus in order to receive life, as if, as if we're paying Him with our faith instead of our, our works. No, the gift is, is free. We are invited to take this living water to receive eternal life without cost. Faith is simply the empty hand that grasps on to Christ. It's a gift of grace. The only thing that you bring to this transaction is your need, your thirst. And Jesus provides the water that truly satisfied. And like the old hymn says, nothing in my hand I bring simply to the cross. I cling. There are some of you here in this room, there are some of you who are joining us online, who have been listening for a while. You've heard us preach through this 
book, but you have not crossed from death to life by coming to Jesus and relying on Him and on Him alone for eternal life. You are still holding back, waiting to come until you can bring something to Jesus to pay Him or to qualify yourself with Him, something to convince Him that you're really sincere, that you're really worth saving. But the invitation as it stands here written in Scripture is, come. Are you spiritually thirsty? Have you found that nothing in the world will satisfy you? Do you know the the weight of your sin? Do you see the judgment that is bound for those who reject God? Do you want forgiveness and eternal life? Then God Himself invites you. The Spirit says, come. And the testimony of God's people throughout all the ages calls you to come. The bride, the church says, come. If you are thirsty, come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. So don't delay any longer. Don't wait until you have quenched your thirst a little bit before you come. Don't wait until you have more good works or fewer sins. Jesus doesn't ask you for any of that. He says, come. He will wash you. He will change you. He will cause you to worship God. He will empower you to stay awake and persevere in your faith. But He doesn't do, He doesn't ask you to do all of those things in order that you might receive eternal life. All you need to do is come. Come, believe. Come, take the water of life freely. Come, rest yourself on Christ and His promises. Come, trust only in the Lord Jesus who died for sins and rose again. Come now, just as you are while there is yet time. For Jesus is coming. But He has said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And so you are invited to come to Jesus by faith as surely as as if He stood here and called you by name to come to Him. And you can do so with the assurance, as Jesus Himself has said, that the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You that You reign, that You you are He who created the heavens and the earth the Lord God Almighty, the one who is holy, the one whose judgments are true and righteous altogether. We thank you that you are sovereign over all, that your kingdom is everlasting, your power absolute. We thank you that you have redeemed us by the blood of Jesus, your Son. Well, Father, as we think about this, this wondrous book that you have given for our instruction, help us to heed what is written in it, to persevere. Lord, we trust that your word is at work in us. So, God, please, by your Spirit, cause your word not to return void, but accomplish its purpose in us. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. The grace of the Lord Jesus who is coming quickly be with you. Amen. You're dismissed.